Hello everybody and welcome to episode 6 of Deep Diving. Thank you so much for checking out the podcast. If you're new to us or just catching up, Deep Diving is a collection of conversations with interesting people and different walks of life, predominantly in the entertainment industry, uh, musicians, actors, singers, etc. But we have got some politicians and other folk coming up in further episodes, so excited to cast the net out a little bit wider. However, today we are rooted back square in the music industry with Glenn Power, who is drummer in The Script. Now, The Script are one of Ireland's biggest musical exports since the history books began, basically. They've sold 35 million albums. They have top charts all over the world and are one of the only Irish acts to ever sell out Croke Park, which is our national stadium, 85,000 people. They truly are musical juggernauts and have been doing it for over a decade at this stage. Um, This is kind of a personal one for me because I started off as a fan of The Script and got to interview them in my capacity as a a presenter. But then I developed a, a friendship with Glenn and during a really tricky time in my life that I've talked about relatively publicly uh, when I went through a period of you know mental turmoil and uh, some some self-harm for a short concentrated period of time Glenn without really knowing directly what was going on was probably the biggest help for me in terms of rearranging my thought patterns and finding my way back to a much healthier space. So I'm kind of forever in gratitude and he's a truly great, humble, interesting guy. So this podcast, we talk about the script, the evolution of the band, but also about uh, about Glenn's own demons that he has faced down, which I guess is kind of what made him such a, a sage mind when I needed a bit of advice. He is a reformed, I'm not sure if he'd put the phrase alcoholic on it, but we talk about his battle with drink addiction, about his metamorphosis from cloudy-minded lost soul to clear-minded happy man and a load of other things. It's a really interesting chat. We touch on God, which we haven't done, and religion. Uh, and that's all kind of nicely mixed in with the, the mayhem of being in one of the biggest Irish bands of all time. So I hope you enjoy. If you do, please post a picture of the podcast on your socials. Please share it. Please help spread the good word and subscribe because it doesn't cost anything and it just means you get updated as soon as I drop new episodes. So without further ado, this is Deep Diving with Glenn Power from The Script. Glenn Power, what's going on? Oh, and how are you doing? It's good to be here today. And this is a beautiful herbal tea you have given me. Let's uh, clink teas. Let's clink teas, indeed. Cha-ching. Thanks for coming over. I mentioned you in a podcast last week that I actually appeared on as a guest. Oh, well. It's a girl called Georgie Gavin. It's a Dublin girl who's who's got one of the biggest podcasts in Ireland. Oh, well. Right now called The Good, good Glow. Oh, good for her. I like the name. Yeah. And it's all about self-care and self-improvement. Right. And all these things. So she yeah. she's a beautiful girl inside and out. And she was struck down with cancer a few years ago and she's beaten it. Oh, good for her. And wow. it's, it's kind of, she uses that as a springboard to talk about all the things she learned about herself and other people Amazing. and these kind of things. But she had me on. We used to work together in spin radio. Okay, brilliant. Which is where... I met the script for the first time. But we were talking about we were talking about my own little dilly dally with, you know, bad mental health okay. and whatnot. Yeah. And I credited you as wow. as the primary person, even though I think you probably didn't know it at the time. I, I didn't. When was that? Wow. That was that was around like two thousand and twelve. Oh, that was the early days in London, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I do remember yeah, I remember that time. 
and I was in a really bad place. We kind of, we didn't know each other that well, but we hit it off socially. Yeah. And yeah. we just had good conversation and it kind of meandered into wonderful and weird territories. And I didn't explicitly tell you what a little hole I was in. Okay. But she kind of had an empathy about you. And I think you were kind of cognizant of the fact maybe there was something a little Underlying, deeper going on. Underlying, yeah, yeah. And uh, and you were just excellent around that time, and you were sending me. Oh, thanks a million, man! Great things to read, head stuff, yeah. head stuff, head stuff, and formulating yeah. thoughts and cognitive behavioural therapies and yeah, all yeah. these kind of hints and tips and tricks. And yeah, probably without knowing it, you really pulled me out of a little wow. a little rabbit hole. That's I was amazing. Going down. Well, you know what? It's the greatest compliment you could ever get off any friend. Um, but at the same time, all I probably did for you was what somebody did for me. And that's how I think life works, which is the interesting thing. Do you know what I mean? Because I'm listen, I've had to climb out of a few of those holes myself along the way. And I always find that whenever you meet somebody who helps you in any way, well, they, the only reason they can do that is because they have no pain themselves in a way do you know what I mean um, so whatever I said or did at that time would have been off the back of something that I had to come through so I probably just sensed it off you because I you know I think what's it, you can't kid a kidder is what they say so usually when you're in a room with someone you know there's some stuff going on you can sense it off them I think on an energetic level um, so that was probably it so I won't take credit for it I'll I'll credit the person that helped me and maybe they'll credit the person that helped them and further back we go and I think that's how life works yeah. and I think that's the beautiful thing about it when you're open to that kind of stuff and when you realise that you know, I think one of the most important things is those moments when you actually can affect somebody like that someone said to me you know when you're on your deathbed what's going to really matter to you is it going to be the car you own the house you own the things you've accumulated, he's like, no, what's going to matter is how you affected another person. What did you do to help another person that was down on their luck in their lives? For me, at the start, it was like, I want to be you know, successful. I want to be the best musician I can be. And I want to tour the world. I want to get on these big stages. And I want to be in front of all these people. And then you do all that. And then you realize, okay, that's amazing. And it's, it's a blessing. And I'm very grateful. But you still realize there's, there's, it's not fulfilling that hole in the soul because I believe there is one there yeah. for me anyway. And at various times it will get bigger or it will get smaller depending on what I do with myself and the actions I take in the day that I'm in. Um, and if I'm grateful, things are great. If I'm not grateful, things are not, not great. It's that simple, really. I've started practicing gratitude mm. recently. And to Aoife, my partner, she's she's the one who brought it into my life. And I'm not going to lie, at the start, I was a little bit skeptical and yeah. a little bit eye-rolly and almost, know. you know, in this... New age stuff, man. Yeah, yeah this smug way. I was like, yes, I'll indulge you, your I silly know. gratitude. But and a really simple thing Aoife does is every night when we go to sleep, she goes, three things you're grateful for. That's amazing. And they can be... And they're a lot of the time, they're really mundane. Like, yeah. oh, this person in work did a nice thing. Yeah. The weather was nice today. I haven't seen blue skies in a while at lifted my mood yeah. I talked to my mom on the phone she made me laugh like Amazing. small things like that but but now we're autopilot and both of us feel wow um, like it, it, the day is incomplete if we don't go to sleep on a gra- doing our little gratitude yeah that's thing. fantastic what yeah. a great idea yeah it's a lovely idea that's a great idea yeah I like that I guess fast track a little bit I feel like the script became very famous very quickly because it was We Cry, it, yeah. Man and Can't Be Moved, Break Even, was yeah, that the order? that's right, yeah. Yeah, and those three songs still three of the biggest songs in your repertoire, I would say. That's, yeah, always on the live set, always, yeah. Yeah. What was that like? It was mad. I mean, at that time, we went from, like, there was a, a gestation period of a year, a year and a half, where we were getting quite frustrated. When is this going to happen? When are we going to move? When, when are we going to tour? When are we going to gig? And then it went from, it was like someone put you in a slingshot while we were saying, when, 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 when to, oh my God, poof. And you were gone. And it went from having a routine at home to being in the studio and spending our time doing that to, I mean, fast, like lightning speed into touring, promo, interviews, airplanes, hotels, cars, 
in the, all over the place. And suddenly you were just, you, there was a day where I didn't know what country I was in. I used to ring home and my mum would say, where are you today? I was like, I actually don't know. Because you always hear that. I never know whether to believe it or not. It was like, is that like a rock and roll cliche? I don't no, know what country true. I'm in. It's really true. Days start to just roll into each other. And when you're on tour, because we have a tour manager who literally will ring us, make sure we're up out of bed and they'll put the schedule under the door. Your job is just to go on stage and be brilliant and that's it. That's your job. Um, and, after, and also be friendly to people and be nice and be bloody grateful for the position you're in and not forget it. But your main job is to go on stage and be in optimal performance position that when you walk out there, you're giving your all to the people who have waited sometimes months to come and see you because they bought tickets yeah. six and seven months ago. So every night you want to be you know, at your, at your peak and that you learn that over time because the first year was just we were just trying to get used to the traveling and the you know just the 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 interviews and doing interviews as three guys in an interview together learning how the flow of that was we kept interrupting each other like as I say for years I would play in a lot of you know covers bands and different things and bars and people weren't really that some people I don't know you get people taking notice but a lot of time they weren't when it came to this band, people were taking notice. They were paying attention. Suddenly you had everybody looking at you. And that took a lot of getting used to as well. Um, and you just knew, okay, this is what I trained for. This is what I dreamt of as a kid. And this is what I practiced my autograph in school for. This is it. This is now the moment. And when it started to come, I actually got very nervous of it. It actually got became very frightening because I thought, oh my God, this is really what I dreamt of coming to me now. Why frightening? I don't know. Maybe that's just a human part of the human condition. It's quite scary when everything you ever wanted starts to roll up to you and you kind of go, oh my God, this is it. And it, I think there's a tendency, you know, maybe it's an ego thing to sometimes, you know, throw a hand grenade in there and try and derail yourself or sabotage it. Um, I know that's how I'm built some of the time that I will, you know, veer towards worst case scenario. I have to manage that a lot of the times and be aware of it. But in, in like in what sense when it was kicking off? you? When it was, was kicking it? off, I just was like, oh my God, what if I can't handle this? Um, we had done a show and it was the first time I walked out and people were screaming. And I, I was first out and I walked out and I literally just opened the door and I went, oh my God, and I walked back in. Because <laughs> I was like, I'm not, how do you deal with that? And I walked into the lads, like, there's people out there screaming. And they're like, yeah. And I was like, well, I'm not going out there on my own, you know. And it's funny now I can do that. But at the start, I couldn't do that. I had to wait for everybody. I was like, I was very self-conscious. And I was like, how, do you, how am I going to talk to these people? These are all things that you learn as you go on and to have the belief in yourself and the courage to step forward. I always say that courage is fear and action combined. You're going to be afraid. You're going to feel fearful, but it's the difference. The difference is taking the action with the fear. That's courage. Courageous people aren't standing there going, I am. Some people might be, but I think generally they're going to have some fear under there. But the choice is to step forward with Do it. it and, and there have been times when I've been on stage at a big show and I think back to when I was in my bedroom and it's such a beautiful feeling to know that I've done it and that I've achieved it in spite of my own anxieties and fears and you know, thoughts of, oh my God, can I handle this and all? And it's, it's so funny what we can do to ourselves with our heads. It's amazing. I don't know, did you see recently Adam Clayton was on with Tommy Tiernan on his I mean, I, Yeah, show. I did see that. I thought he was great. Yeah. I know Adam very well, actually. He's a cool guy. He's a very nice man. Yeah. Tommy asked him about the famous story where he missed one of the U2 gigs because oh. he upended himself on drink and drugs and oh, God, God knows what. Okay. Only time he's ever missed a gig. Oh, wow. And he said that was the eureka moment where he said, because he said he had, he had kind of, you know, he had danced with the devil a little bit. Yeah, of course. He had strolled down, didn't want to stroll down. He said, but that was the one where he said, fuck, I could get kicked out of the band here, you know. Yeah. And he said from that day on, that was the beginning of the end of his Yeah, yeah, that's right. I remember reading about like. that. I don't think it was quite that level of dysfunction, but you cut drink out of your life. I did, uh, over eight years ago. Wow, touch wood, thank God. Um, I had a similar moment to probably like what Adam had, only nobody knew about it because I got through the moment. Uh, we were playing in Birmingham 
it was our first arena tour and our management came down and it was 16,000 people and I'll never forget because our manager walked in 16,000 people tonight it's going to be amazing and I was, first, first album um, first album yeah. yeah and when he said 16,000 people I was like oh my god and for the first time ever I felt real pressure because I'd been up till 7 in the morning in in the hotel room drinking on my own um, having a great time of course you know yeah. it's, it's all good I didn't drop a glass in the bath and that smashed while I was on to my parents at three in the morning talking utter nonsense that never happened um, and I thought it was 15 minutes but it turns out it was two hours do you know what I mean so um, but I remember going on stage that night and you know again after so many years of dreaming of it to, to be there and to be at the pinnacle of it and you know be at the top of the mountain and suddenly I'm sitting there and, and I start seeing stars I thought it was going to pass out and I literally was going I had no food no sleep before we went on stage and Danny's actually very he's quite comedic but he, he walked up and he, and he said to me dude you're yellow you look like a Simpson he's like are you actually okay I was like no no I'm grand and one of, the, one of our managers walked over to me and said look are you okay like I'm, I mean it as in as a friend are you just caning it but are you actually okay I was like no I'm okay so I knew I wasn't okay because I hadn't slept and we had a meeting with management that day and I stayed in another room to try and catch up on some sleep while the meeting was going on which I should have been in but I couldn't sleep the heart was flying 90 miles an hour anxiety I was stressing over the gig and then I went on stage and almost passed out three songs in so at the end of the song it was before the worst I believe it was the third song I looked at Danny and I gave him the L emu hand signal I was like talk just talk and I called my drum tech over and I'm oh, like buy me time yeah I'm like ice give me ice and a banana and you know so he can tell with ice so I'm now putting ice in my neck up my shirt and my stomach and I'm trying to eat a banana and I get a second wind and we carry on and I'm playing very weakly. I've, you know, I'm not as powerful as I normally would be. I'm not as consistent as I would have been. I didn't feel as confident. It was a horrible experience. And at that part of the show, there was a point where I'd get up and put a drum on and I'd have to walk down off the ramp on my own for like about 20, 30 seconds. And I'm literally walking, <laughs> I'm walking up to the ramp and I'm praying to every relative that has passed on that I will make it from the ramp back down to the drums before the intro of uh, This Is Love and, I'm, and you know the start of it is me playing this drum thing and it's answered on the screens behind me with me playing against myself and the spotlight comes on me and you're just looking at an arena full of people and you and your own and I'm standing there going what am I doing? This is crazy and so I get through that I get the kit I get through the gig I, I get another moment where I think I'm going to go again and I don't and it's fine I come off stage and I'm blessing myself and going wow now I'd played on hangovers before and I'd, got, I'd, I'd never had that moment this was the lowest moment and I was like okay that was bad and I remember the next day we got on the bus after coming out of the hotel and I was apologising to everybody and everyone was like, don't worry about it, we all have our moments, you're fine. And I swore, that's it, never going to happen again. And I swore to myself, I'm never doing that again. Two nights later, we were playing in Bournemouth and I'm not blaming my cousin in case he hears this. He'd be like, that's my fault, it's not his fault. I ended up, same situation again. I'm in the bar, the hotel, top shelf bourbons, brandies, all this nonsense. I leave behind my leather jacket, all madness and I go on stage that night. I'm the same again. And I'm sitting there on stage going, what is going on? Why has this got away from me? You know, I thought I had control of this. And then we were playing um, London. I think it was uh, Wembley or whatever. And um, I remember that of that gig, I felt really bad. And we were, we'd normally have a little cheeky air. We would have a little double vodka before we go on stage. And I was standing backstage about to go on and I was offered the, the vodka and I held it in my hand and I just looked at it and I went, if I drink this, it's not going to make me feel better. If I don't drink this, it's not going to make me feel better. And I'm like, now I'm really screwed. Okay. Because I knew now, okay, this is, now you're in, you're, I don't know where you are, but this is a bad place to yeah. be in. And we were waiting at the steps backstage to walk up and there was curtains and the curtains got pulled back 
and it was just lights and it was oh, I was and I always remember the, the vision of it was so beautiful and yet I was so I felt so I knew something was broken I knew something wrong and I went out on stage and I, we did the show and it felt like I was there but I wasn't there my appetite was gone I wasn't sleeping right I was force feeding myself before the gig chicken breasts cut into squares with a bottle of water just swallowing them down because I knew I needed the energy um, and at that point I knew I was in trouble and I knew there was something wrong and um, I then reached out to my friend in Las Vegas my best friend who I grew up with and he was sober a long time and I took funny enough we had our first drinks together as kids and uh, I rang him no I texted him from the lobby from underneath that venue uh, on the tour bus and I just texted him and said dude um, <laughs> I need your help and he said what's wrong I said uh, I think you know I won't go into it I, I used a few curse words you know I'm, I'm, I'm effed or whatever I said and, and he said he texted me back and he said will you do anything to feel okay question mark and I, I said yeah I will and he, and he texted me back again anything question mark and I went yes I will and he went okay call me later and so I did and he started to coach me a little bit and the journey began a new journey began another life they say you have lives within a, within a life so a new life began and I knew I knew you had given up drink I remember we kind of got to know each other one night after I think you played either the Olympia or Three Arena and we ended up in the Morrison Hotel. Yes. And we stayed up. We might have had a drink actually then. Yeah, yeah. You were still 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 drinking drinking and we we stayed up just drinking Guinness then. We weren't going wild. But I think you were the last person out of there. Like we left there like half three, four in the morning. Oh yeah, you were Um, lucky you got out of there and I didn't bring you somewhere else. Looking back at it now, was it at the level of I need it, I'm an alcoholic or just it's just not suiting me. I know and it's funny you know when you put terms on, on the whole thing because people often ask me that I never put a term on it I just know that oh, it's so hard to put it into words I think that particular thing that chemical substance you know when I put that in me it exacerbates everything that I have to as a human that isn't good in me yeah. that I have to deal with and when I'm not having that in there I find life just much easier and easier to live with myself and also I've got to experience little things that have felt amazing compared to bigger things that I thought were amazing when I was drinking that weren't. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, okay. It's hard to explain, but um, I just I just felt I was, you know, I tried to control it. I tried to just drink on weekends. I, I kept a diary. I, this is all before I stopped. I kept a drinking diary. I said, right, only going to do weekends. That's it. I'm gonna, I had an iCal and I had the drinking diary in there and I was like, very good. Look at that. See, there's, there's two months, no problem. But sure enough, Wednesday, a little little day would sneak in and Thursday and I was marking tracking all my hangovers and then all the hangovers started to come back in it just kept getting away from me so I'd switched it to wine I'd <laughs> I tried many things um, and then one day you know like I just woke up and I just thought what would this experience be like without feeling sick all the time without trying to juggle this thing that I'm trying to manage in the middle of this great thing that's happening to me what would this be like if I actually tried to do this um, and so I decided to give it a try and then I started to look better. I started to, you know, lost a little bit of weight. I started to get clearer in the skin. My eyes got wider. Um, and then I had to learn just how to deal with some of the reasons I was drinking like that and my head. And you know, that's that's an ongoing work. Yeah, okay. But uh, you do start to hit nice places in, in that where you get a lot of stability and groundedness and you start to learn a lot about your head. You really, you really have to go within. So I suppose maybe when we were talking, I had come through some of that. And so... I was able to give you some of that stuff that I'd learned, maybe yeah. some of those little phrases or whatever. I don't know. Um, but I did have to go through a lot of pain because when I put it down, there was a lot of stuff that arrived that I hadn't been dealing with and I had to learn how to process that. Yeah. And that was a very tough process. I mean, stopping stopping was was the hardest thing I've ever had to do. Staying stopped was tricky, but the the aftermath of that and having to kind of work through all the stuff, I mean, oh man, it was really, really hard. Really, really hard. 
Like I'm not going to lie to you, it was some of the toughest stuff I've ever had to do. But I did it because I knew, okay, I want to, I want to find out what it's like to be on the other side of this stuff. And a lot of it's stuff that you're carrying with you for years. You don't even know is in there. Um, and I'm not. Sometimes it would influence my heavy session drinking. Sometimes not. Um, but the great thing was to. I, I was in when was it two or three years ago? I was at a Christmas party in Lily's upstairs, and I was looking across the bar, and I was with some friends of mine. And I was drinking a Coke or a tonic water or whatever. And I saw these couple of young guys standing at the bar. And I could see the guys were looking over and wanted to come over and chat to them. But they couldn't because you could see they were kind of trapped in themselves. and they Stiff, were, yeah. yeah, they're throwing down more drinks. And I could see them getting more drinks in to try and build up the courage to do that. And I was looking over at them going, oh my God, I remember when I was like them and they're drinking to try and enjoy where they are. Now I've walked in here. I'm the same right now at this bar as I was this morning getting out of bed. And I'm going to be the same here in another hour and another hour. And when I leave here, I'm going to be the same. And I'm like... God, isn't it lucky I can actually do this now? I could never walk into this environment with this vibe and not feel comfortable and feel like I did this morning getting out of bed. Now I can. And now I can choose where I want to be there or not. It's not like there's all this pressure on me. I just I have a way of being in those areas. Um, and I felt really blessed in that moment. And I had a lot of gratitude. And then I left <laughs> I left Lily's and got into a taxi. And we start talking. And the taxi man started talking about his brother-in-law who was in rehab who's 63. And I was like, well, dude, I don't drink. And he's like, oh my God, how did you do that? And then we were talking about that all the way home. And I thought it was the irony of it, me having that moment and then getting into a taxi and the guy telling me about his brother who's 63, got into rehab and he said, we can't help him. He just keeps, you know, he can't get it together and stuff. And I was like, okay, if the universe is trying to tell you a message, this is a sign, you know? And so there's been a lot of them moments along the way, a lot of very mysterious encounters and meetings. Um, and also it's almost like when I stopped, things started to go right. Some things didn't go right because there's like a pruning of sorts. What's meant for you stays, what's not gets kind of plucked away. I had some terrible blunders as well in my not drinking, in, in things that I've said, done and tried to, when I thought I was doing the right thing, I'd be doing the wrong thing. A lot, God, a lot of apologies were, were sent out and stuff. Um, what for your behaviour was you were drinking? Uh, yeah, oh yeah, there was, there's, that's, yeah, that's one part of getting well, I had to do that. And also, even in, in being sober, you're trying to figure out yourself. So you make, you make some blunders and you're human. So, but the great part is you kind of, if you, if you can recognise it quick enough, you're quick to say, listen, I'm way, I'm out of line here. I'm really sorry. That's wrong. Blah, blah, blah. And hopefully as you go along, you try to just be more empathic and, and not make them blunders again. Yeah. And I'm still learning and each year brings a new page for me and a new turning point. But I do find that each year that comes, things settle down and get quieter and quieter and quieter. And then you get the you get it a couple of days or a week or a month of what I call the goal rush. And I'm in a goal rush now, baby. And the goal rush is where everything's going well and you feel good and you're waking up positive. And uh, yeah, I call that the goal rush. I t- let's, let's, let's cheers to the goal our, rush because it's on, baby. Tea to that, yeah. It's the goal rush right now. <laughs> I'm loving it. On that note, do you want a hot drop? No, I'm fine. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, congratulations on yeah. on improving that area of your life. Thank you. Yeah, other people have fallen on that hurdle. Yeah, no, it's a process and it's it's a continued process. And uh, I've been very lucky. I've had I've had you know I didn't do it alone. I've had some help off some very good people. But when I was ready to to turn that point, it was almost like the door was open and the right people came along. And good. And I've got good friends who are also on the path as well, who are also sober that I can call for advice and touch base with and stuff. And uh, yeah, I've been very lucky. Very, very lucky. So this is all kind of around album one. Yes. What happened, as I recall it, you have the big singles off album one, you're touring all over the place. Mm. I remember you were on the Sony 
music world priority list like they'll yeah. focus bands in different territories oh this band is doing well in the UK and maybe Germany so we'll do loads of promo you yeah. were on the world priority list and I remember some songs off that album were on like big big American TV shows right. like The Hills and we appeared on that yeah yeah you, you, had a, you had a physical appearance on that yes that was and, mad and so all of a sudden you go from being a new band to being the new band and you're wanted all over the world and yeah. I remember I remember early in album two or maybe late in album one, I saw a video of Dan at, a f- well, you guys, Dan's voice, it, it was weak. Yeah. And I said, fucking hell, he's in a bit of trouble there. Yeah. And he's kind of retrospectively acknowledged it, that maybe you were, you were gunning a little bit yeah. too hard. <laughs> yeah. Did it stop being fun then early on for any stage or did you, did you actually enjoy the mad hustle of it? I think at the beginning we did enjoy the mad hustle. There were certainly points where, yeah, there was, uh, along the way, I I can't lie about it, there were points where it wasn't fun. There was one time we, oh my God, it was so busy, we couldn't even wash our clothes, we couldn't pay bills, there was sheriff's letters in London coming through the door because of electricity bills, we just weren't there to pay. Um, there were one or two moments where it was like, okay, we need to actually go home and see the, see people that we're related to. Yeah. Um, because I think that was, but again, you know, I wouldn't change it because we had to hustle that hard. We were willing to put that in. We didn't want to say no to anything. And I mean, we said yes to everything at the start um, because we knew that's what we had to do. And as our management said, look, lightning doesn't strike twice. This is like after going everywhere. So we need to jump on it. And we did. But uh, it was, there was sometimes, but it was tough. But because we were together and there was three of us, it was easier because when somebody felt a little bit down, the other two can take up the slack. We'd never all feel, you know, a little bit off on the same day. I mean, we're all human, so we're going to have days where someone's up and someone's down. But we had the ability to kind of, I suppose, you know, cradle each other in a way in the middle of all of that and kind of get ourselves back up. And we were also always aware of how lucky we were to have gotten the shot and got, you know, got that first shot to get through the door. But again, we worked really, really hard. You know, we toured everywhere. We'd done every gig that was put in front of us. We only ever cancelled one show in our whole career. That was when Dan had a laryngitis. It's only once. We, he'd get on stage with, you know, broken glass in his hands, you know, and his neck even. He'd yeah. still sing. But this particular gig, he couldn't even talk. Um, so, yeah, we were probably pushing it at the start. But fair play to Danny, he, um, he found a way to manage through that and push on. And he would always just get up there and, and sing his heart out, you know, no matter what was going on. He did the voice. Yeah. Early enough on that was around album two as well, wasn't it? Three, yeah, yeah, you know, three. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. So, so album two would come out, Science and Faith, great album, and then he goes because I feel like you were you were a big radio band then, but actually, particularly Dan as a frontman could probably walk around relatively hassle free before the Voice, like in the yeah, UK. Yeah, true. And then he goes from being a frontman to being a frontman and a TV personality. Yeah, that's um, right. I always wonder, did he? And you guys semi-regret that, even though it served the purpose of upping your profile? No, I mean, no, not at all. We knew what he was going in to do and what he was getting into. Um, it was great that we were able to manage it as uh, the way it was because we were in the middle of making an album and he was doing that too. So no, we just thought it was a win-win. Why not do it, you know? Yeah, okay. And, and he did, I think he did fantastic at it. He did really well. He may revisit that if we take time off down the road. Who knows? I thought he was great. I know he got a buzz out of it, but I know he did miss the band and being in the band in the sense of being known for that. And I know that's where his heart always is and always yeah. was. But I think it was nice for him to do that and I think he really enjoyed it. But... 
I know Dan is he, he just he's he's like he's like us all. We just love being in the unit, and there's there's there really is strength in the unit. Yeah. Um. You and you know we, as we often say, you know you're at the top of the mountain. Oh, look at the view, and if you're there on your own, you're like well, well, you can't really enjoy it as much when you're with somebody. And I read in a book that happiness isn't really happiness unless it's shared. And so when you're with your mates and this amazing thing is happening or you're in some crazy situation, you're like, this is mad, isn't it? And we've had situations like that on red carpets and we're like, this is really weird. Yeah. And we kind of laugh. We're like Forrest Gump in that moment. And I know Danny loves that element of it. And I think, I think we just all need to be in a band. <laughs> so, but we, I remember we, myself and a pal of mine, um, Rachel, you know Rachel. Oh. Rachel Wise. Mm-hmm. We went I met to her at the, the Voice, Voice, which actually, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. In the bar, you, you got us tickets that yeah. time, and we went to see recording the show, and then we all went out for a drink afterwards. And I was walking to get a taxi, and Dan says, "Oh, I'll walk that way. I'm going to go to McDonald's. I'm going to get a burger before I yeah, go." That'd be Danny. Yeah. And Jesus, it was the wrong thing for him to do. He was yeah lashed out because he had his you know he's he had his cap on. But he's yeah. a tall guy. He's like six four. I know, he's like, like, like a periscope. You can't miss him when he walks around. And then one person saw him, and then ten people saw him, and then and then it was it went from being a bit of crack up, few people yeah, want to melee, just to, bang. To, to almost like dangerous yeah. situation, like a yeah. hundred people around, everyone clamoring, getting a little bit pushy and shovey. It's yeah, like two yeah. o'clock in the morning, yeah. and he's like fuck this I'm out and he just legged it and jumped in a cab because yeah. it was getting it wasn't that he was he was polite had, to everybody I had that in London with him one night I went out with him once and I was like I'm not going out with you again it was literally like we were surrounded by paparazzi getting into a taxi it was mental I was like oh I don't like that is that a payable cost do you think oh well you know it's one that you've got to be willing to pay I think in our game you're always going to have an element of that It's it also is I think a lot of it has to do with how you handle yourself off stage so he did that TV show for a reason and, and, and he fulfilled it and he was brilliant. But as a band, when we are doing our thing, we do our thing and we go home. We do our gigs, we meet our fans, we interact with them. But that's it. That's where the line is drawn. We love being known for being a great band and great musicians and great with mu- great songwriters and great and music and all. But after that, that's we don't, we're very... Um, we're quite habitual in the way we do our thing and after shows we just want to hang out with our friends and family especially if we're in Dublin we haven't seen people so we and even when we're on the road we, it's quite the little circle we, we're quite tight like that and we keep it that way so there's a familiarity for us when we're, when we're travelling um, and we're just we were, you know maybe we should be but we were never into the glitz and the glam you know because we're just at the end of the day we're still the same guys we're just doing it on bigger stages with bigger lights and like it's two lives it's my band musician band life and my private life and that's what they call a private so I try as best as I can to keep the two separate so I can have one to myself. Yeah. When, so you were making album three around yeah. the time Danny's on The Voice and album one and two are much more guitar driven albums. Yes. And then Hall of Fame comes out. Yes. And it's been done by loads of bands. Coldplay, prime example. Look at Parachutes where they started right. off versus look at the Chainsmokers song yeah. which is I think their mm-hmm. most streamed song of all time. And I remember actually I was chatting to a lady in Radio 1, a producer, BBC Radio 1 and she was talking about, you know they do that big weekend. You've I'm sure played it a few we times. Played, yeah. And she was talking about booking it and Coldplay one of the years were the headline and she said, I'm not going to lie, until they brought out Sky Full of Stars with Avicii there was no appetite to have them as the headliner. Wow. Like they're still Coldplay who have Viva La Vida and Violet Hill and all these other tunes. Amazing she was songs, like, yeah. Until great. that song came out, they weren't for us. Wow. And I'm wondering, when you've made that change sonically, mm-hmm. was there any debate in the band or friction in the band? There was definitely, some, I mean, we definitely had conversations. We knew we were steering it that way. It was definitely different from what we had been doing, but it felt like the right thing, thing to do at the time. It, it just felt like it was, it was a step to take. Um, and it was a very successful one. 
yeah. at, at to ourselves. We, we did great numbers. Everything was great. It was, I think at the time it was the right thing to do because we needed to progress and move into new territory and we hadn't done that. So I think it was a niche we had to scratch at the time. Yeah, okay. and, and as I said, we, it, Hall of Fame is massive. What's so. your favourite song? Break Even will always be my favourite song. Always. Rhythmically, as a drummer playing it, lyrically, and also because I remember shooting the video on Wexford Street in Wheelands. Yeah, every time every time we play that song, it's just a beautiful song to play. It's just it's the groove and the feel, and I just always love playing the song for some reason. John Mayer said it was his favourite song oh, of whatever year. We met him, out. me and Mark met him in London. We went to his gig, and he said, uh, he tweeted about it, and then we went to a show and met him, and he was like, you know, when you break up with a girl, and you can't talk to her anymore, but you write a song about her, and you're going to get her when she's walking down the, the aisle of the supermarket, and your song comes on. He said, yeah, is that what that song's about? <laughs> about break even. I think it was something like, I challenge anybody to write a better that's right, song that's than right. the script's break yeah, even. Yeah, that was amazing. Yeah. yeah. Another thing, because we've known each other for a good few I years know, now, yeah. but I only found out last year. Go on. Because it was a throwaway comment that Mark made. You were doing the Chiline gig in Dublin. Yes. Not Christmas gone, the previous Christmas. Okay, raised, yeah. you know, half a million great euro gig. for Chiline. You've done it a few times. You're great ambassadors. Great gig, that. yeah. And Mark made some throwaway comment about you nearly dying. That's right. About you had an operation or a head injury yeah. or something. And I kind of looked at you sideways and goes... Yeah, okay, so it would have been, again, life is funny. It was at the start of the whole thing, first album... We were going out on tour with Newton Faulkner supporting him in England. You were supporting Newton Faulkner? Yeah, yeah. That no was way. The start, yeah. He's another great musician, great guitar player and singer and all. Um, he was kind of Ed Sheeran before Ed Sheeran was Ed Sheeran. Uh, exactly. So that was in the cards and I slipped and fell and banged my head in, my local, in the toilet in my local pub, fractured my skull. In Dublin? In Dublin. My dad made me go to the hospital. I didn't want to. We went to the hospital and then I started getting this immense pain in the right-hand side of my head. Like It was like I was in a vice grips. They took me in and scanned me and said I had a fractured skull and I had a bleed and if I didn't have an emergency craniotomy I would have a stroke or a heart attack so I had to sign the consent form for that and then they operated on me for like three or four hours and then the only way they know if you're okay is by waking you up and talking to you so it was like what's your name where are you from how many fingers am I holding up what do you do what years you know all this stuff um, and then I you know that's what happened and it took me a while to recover from that one I got up and I was dizzy I couldn't walk straight all I wanted in my hand was a guitar and I told my mother bring me in a guitar I have to see can I still play music um, and she did and it's funny the first day when I woke up I was sick I couldn't eat I was putting ice cubes in my mouth for dehydration and um, the guy would come around the morning with the trolley and he'd see me I was literally lying in the bed like just I had a, a drip sorry a drain out of my head for the excess blood that was there and um, and all these 30 staples in my head it was horrible and I remember going into the bathroom and everyone could hear me outside in the hallway going oh, I was, oh my god like when I saw my head and it was all shaved on one side and um, my mother brought me in the guitar and the next morning the guy came around with the trolley with the food and I was sitting up in the bed entertaining everybody on the ward that I was in singing songs and I knew then that I was going to be okay and then of course as soon as I got out of there I was out of there nine days they said I was one of the quickest to get out I believe it's because of music and because I'm a drummer because it's uh, you know it's ambidextrous and you're using multifunctional the dual hemispheric a brain surgeon told me and the minute I got home straight out to the drums and sat down went through everything I knew and it was all there it just felt slightly off. That's the only way I can explain it. And then next I knew I was over rehearsing with the guys uh, in London. And the first day I played, it just felt like everything was like like a fraction off. And I was asking, do I sound okay? And they're like, dude, you sound perfect. I remember getting down behind the drums on my knees in the room in front of everybody and praying to God and saying, just please don't take this from me. Let this come back. And it took about two or three days. And then it was like whatever in my head had been nudged just realigned and everything came back sharp again and then I was back but I still had a dose of the, the dizzies every so often I would lose my balance a little bit that was for about 
three to four months the lads would catch me I'd be getting off a bus and I'd, I'd wobble a little but uh, I was very very lucky and I went back got the head scan a year later the guy's like you've no deficit like you're you're very very lucky that we got you in here quick enough to, to get because if you had went home I would have ended up God, God bless her uh, Liam Neeson's wife didn't go to the hospital and she ended up dying from it same, same injury. injury same injury dude no yeah I was very sad when I heard what happened to her because of the same injury I saw an interview jumping back to El Chris Martin again actually that he did with Zane Lowe and and actually I've kind of asked this of, of any musician that's been on the podcast so far the money side of things yes. when you go from you're paying your way through pub gigs I remember that covers yep. bands weddings yeah. to, and maybe it takes a while to roll in but then when it starts to roll in yeah. it keeps coming because you guys are getting bigger and bigger yeah. and your venues are getting bigger and your songs are getting bigger and all these things yeah. does the money cause problems does making a lot of money cause you problems um, no, I mean, no, no, I love the money. No, I mean, really, unless you manage it wrong or you kill yourself consuming it, which you can do, I would say no, but it can, of course, it can bring problems. It brings, it brings opportunity. It brings freedom. It brings freedom of choice. You can do whatever you want to a degree. Like does it even, does it change the people around you? Like, did you notice? Things do change a bit. Yeah. I mean, that's true. Certain, there are certain sides of it that become kind of comical and funny, um, I never drop the name card. I never go, it's Glenn from the script. I just never, never do it. I, I just can't. I won't. And people say to me, wouldn't you not tell them who you are? Like, and I'm like, no, I can't do that. I just I just want to be me. I'm Glenn. So I could never just, you know, ring up a restaurant house, Glenn from the script, and I want to book a table. I would never do that. If they say they're full, they're full. Fine. Um, and again, who cares anyway? You're just a normal dude. But even in terms of how people reacted to you, like I noticed that being a common thread. I think it was Dan from Bastille yeah. saying... Yeah, when they started to kick off, not super close friends, but good friends that mightn't be on the absolute inner circle. Mm-hmm. He said they almost got awkward in themselves, didn't know how to act towards them. He noticed some people, not yeah. even that he couldn't handle it, but some people around him got funny. Yeah, I mean, there were moments where you might go into a local you've been in and then people are just asking you a lot about what you're doing because you're travelling so much and stuff and you find that you're just talking about yourself and you try and turn it back to them well, how's your life what are you up to and stuff and and that was we we used to talk about it in the first two or three years when we'd get in the car and we'd be travelling somewhere our experiences of that um, the phone would blow up from people that you hadn't heard of from in 15 years or 20 years because you went to school with in different countries that you'd be in and you just wouldn't know them and suddenly they were contacting the offices of the record label to say they wanted to come to your show and stuff like that. Um, in some cases, people you didn't want to see again. That was kind of funny. Um, no, my close friends who I have most of my life, um, no, they didn't really change. I suppose when there were some friends that when they came to a show were kind of shocked at how the perception of it all is and how big it is and then to see me just as me walking down the pier with a coffee in my hand chatting to them, they were like, it's so mad, I'm just standing here and now we're just, this is what it is and now you go and do that. So I can understand that side of it and it, for, for us as well in the beginning, that was hard to manage um, to go from like doing, I used to, like I always said when I'd come home from tour, I'd love going to Tesco's and finding the milk because they always move it by the time I get home. So that was a mission to go in and there was a, a guy that used to work behind the meat counter and part of my routine was chatting to him when I get home. Yeah. Now he's he's got he's gone now from there but that was a big thing. How's life? How's the kids? What's happening? How's everybody? And he, he was a neighbour like, um, and so for me that I used to love the normality of that going in there and doing that and I still do listen I do my own shopping and do all that but um, and I, I in, in general no just when you meet new people there is that sense of that what you're talking about that's true when you meet new people there is this kind of not a barrier but there's like a lens over and can you see that in people can you see yes. that yes that they're a little bit 100% 
starstruck or yeah you sometimes can and sometimes it's not there and sometimes it is but yeah you can absolutely and actually jumping back in time a little bit how were your parents about you even going into the music industry in the first place because obviously now you know retrospectively you've had all this success and whatnot but when you're you know a teenager in an uncertain industry it can go one of two ways i guess it can be like ed sheeran's dad who kind of took him seriously early and said if you're gonna do it do it go on get out of here go to london um, or it can be like Dead Poets Society, you're going to get a real job, this is ridiculous, give up these whimsical notions and be a lawyer. God, there was times I wanted to give music up and my mother turned to me and said, if you're going to give music up, you're going to have to move out of the house because you're not going to be happy and you can't live here if you're going to do that. That's her attitude. No way. I swear to God, yeah. Is that honest to goodness? Honest to, I swear to God, that was my mother's attitude. You have to keep doing music. That's what your thing is. Because so many parents would be, yeah. get a steady job. No, they were not like that. I mean, they they supported me when I had nothing. And my dad would force, he would drive me to gigs when I was 16 and leave me in the car park with my drum kit. And and I'd meet two guys who played guitar and uh, guitar and bass and I'd go in and end up doing a pub gig. He did that to me many, many times and I was not ready for it. But it was the best thing he could have done to me because it just forced me to to adapt and improvise and just get in there. And that, that really taught me a lot back then but he did that to me so many times he got me the gig with Brendan O'Carroll before Brendan was uh, Mrs Brown what was the gig? the gig was Brendan the outrageous comedy show it was called no way yes Brendan called into the house one day and uh, basically he heard was me he just, was he pals with your dad? yeah they were pals for years and he called in and heard me drumming upstairs he said who's that up there and my dad was like oh, that's my, my, my uncle Glenn and he's like would he do a gig with us because two of our musicals are going on holiday and we need someone to stand in my dad's like, yeah, he would. And so I had to go and meet Brendan and his partner, Jerry, at the time down in the Parks Hotel in Stillorgan. And the keyboard player was there as well, who was the Deppin, to meet them and talk money. So I'm sitting there, I'm a kid, I'm 16, and they're like, okay, so we'll give you uh, 300 for here, and we'll give you 500 for outside Dublin. And I'm sitting there, I'm only 16, I was like, oh my God. And they're like, so would that be okay for you? And I was like, yeah, that's fine. And I was like, yes. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I ended up jumping in the back of the transit with the lads and going around Ireland, all around Ireland with Brendan, and just jammed the places where. And it's so interesting that all the crew he had on that gig are all in the show and he kept everybody. Brendan's a great guy like that. That's very cool. The grandfather's Dermo in the show and Pat Pepsi is in the show as well. They were, they looked after me. And then they used to drive me home and they let me have my first point of Guinness. Now we let you have a point, but don't tell your dad. And I was like, I won't say a word and I'd be sitting having a point of Guinness with them after the show. <laughs> and they drive me home. Um, and I've been in touch with Brendan all the time. Brendan is a great guy. Um, so that was down to my dad my dad forced me out of the room I would have stayed in the room but he forced me out of the room and said you need to get out you need to play you can't stay in the room so he got me my first gigs and once I started getting paid I was like I want to do this this is a job I can get money for this and I went through so many different bands and then it came to that fateful day when I got Mark's number and rang him and I just I remember going I remember going over to LA I remember the night before I went I drove to the car park of my local church and I sat in the car park. The church was closed and I was looking up at the cross on top of the church and I was praying to God and I was going, is this the start of something now? Because I had a sense. I almost felt it was. Are you, are you religious? I'd be spiritual. Spiritual. Less religious. I believe in God. I know there's something because I've had moments in my life where where things have happened to me and it's got to be more than mere coincidence. And mo- times when I've asked for, asked for help and it's arrived in a, in a way I could never have, ma- have imagined. So I do believe there is a force at work. What is it? What's it called? It could be many things. I don't know, but I know there's something. Do you believe in heaven? Um, I believe that there's, there's, there's versions, there can be versions of heaven and hell, yeah. which we can make ourselves. I think it's all the one. I, I think we're all connected and I think we're all a part of what that is and I think we're all a part of what God is. I struggle with the concept of God 
I do. I kind of want to believe in something, but I can't. Right. There's not enough there for me to grasp onto. Yes. Particularly like in terms of Christianity. Like I don't, for example, believe that 2019 years ago, there was a man walking around right. Jerusalem that was the physical manifestation of, of okay. the omnipresent creator. I, yeah. I can't buy into that. Okay. Do you think he might have actually been a person? Oh, I think I think there was a Jesus Christ. Yeah. Like the way there was a Galileo. I think he was just a dude who did great things, okay. but has been eulogized in such a way. Yeah. That, you know, the way that whole, that concept of energy can't be created from nothing. Right, okay. You can't create energy from nothing, but you can change energy from one form, one to, form another. to another. Okay. So when you talk, you create sound waves. Yeah. And that energy then goes off into the universe yeah, you're somewhere. Pushing so air, yeah. When you, when you say you're dying word or breathe or dying breath that energy gets absorbed into the universe and so you exist omnipresently in the universe in some way shape or form that even as a vague concept i can get behind as in yeah. eternally your energy will exist in the world and so yeah. try put out good energy yeah but I, yeah I, the god thing i still i still struggle with and funny i i used to not give a shit when i was in my 20s i don't believe in god that's the end of it yeah we live do a good job then die and it's over yeah and now as I get older I kind of go you're searching for some meaning yeah also I love my job yeah but the media game like the music game I suppose is a momentum game and like if you're a teacher you can take a career break and you can get a year off and you can go if you get that itch in your mid-30s or whatever and you can go travel and you can come back and pick up your job but media it's harder to do that yeah so to be honest I would love to sack off everything just for a year 18 months and, and go, travel the world. And go and do now, a, a bit of digging, a bit of today. searching. Today, I would yeah. love it. And and I'm not brave enough to do it because I feel like I'm beholden to whatever, some commercialism or capitalism okay. or fucking yeah. momentum or I've got I a know mortgage. What you mean. Or, yeah, I know it's a, you know, it's always a touchy subject, religion and politics, two of the areas that you just stay out of. But I mean, for me, my own personal belief is, yes, that there is something. I believe there is. And um, I think that belief gives me hope at various times. Um and when I get really unsure, I just, I dial everything back to right now, to yeah. the moment I'm in. <clears throat> and I've read so many books on all of that stuff and sometimes it doesn't make sense. Sometimes it goes over my head. But what I do find works, which I've learned from mentors that have helped me, is when I stop projecting into next week, next year, and I just dial back to today and deal with this, I'm pretty all right in the day I'm in. So when I stop trying to go, oh, well, what if this and what if that happens? And then what if I've got to do this next week? And then it might turn into that. How am I going to manage this? And I go, hold on. Right now, you don't have to deal with that. Yeah, That's not even real. But my mind is, is it, our minds are so complex that we can go there and we can psychosomatically affect ourselves physically by thoughts about a future that hasn't even happened yet in the moment we're in, separate to that future that's not real. Yes. And and yet actions have consequences and you have to be cognizant of yes, that. that's true. But in that moment, you're not even taking an action. You're thinking of an action you might be taking. Yeah, yeah, okay. And then you're playing it out in your mind. If as I an, do that, it will take, yeah, yeah. as an imaginary scenario or an action that someone else might take imaginatively and then you're sitting there with this, it'll actually start to affect you physically. I can actually do that to myself. I can go into the future, you know, imagine up some presupposed, you know, carnage or something that would be negative to me because it's always to me. Um, the self is the, is, the, is the source of all this trouble, is the self. Um, and I will start to worry about that and go, oh my God, but what about this? And what about that? And what, and, or I might see some perceived idea or notion that I've decided now is a threat to me and my welfare or my safety and security. And then that will start to affect me in the moment I'm in. And it's not even real. It hasn't even happened. And 99%, and this is a fact, I can state this and put my life on it. 99% of the things that I have worried about in my life have never happened. 99% of them. 
Not 60A, not 70A, 99%. Even in the day I'm in, 99% of those things won't happen. Yeah. And they and they will not happen. They might happen slightly like what I've worried about, but it's never what I've worried about. And it's never as bad. Yeah, okay. And so after a while, when I start to monitor that, I start to go, hang on a minute. Why am I doing this for? I probably have a choice in this, but we become so habitual with that and you become so automatic that you actually forget to think about what you're thinking about. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And so for me, it, for me, it's an ongoing thing because I'm, I'm wherever I go, there I am and I can't get away from myself. So I've had to stop and try and do a bit of work on that because I can, man, in the past, I would have had a tendency when things are great to just throw a hand grenade in and it can be in any, any shape or form. And sometimes I'll do it automatically and think I'm justified. Now, that was so right what I said there and it makes so much sense. And then later I'll run it by somebody and they'll go, dude, that is crazy. Why did you say that? And I'll be like, oh yeah, it is. And now I'm apologizing. Yeah, okay. So I have to... Um, Luckily, by you know, not when I was drinking, there was a lot of that going on. Yeah, and people around me suffered, and I had to say apologies and stuff and all. Now that's not so much happening, and it's it's something that I'm able to manage because I'm able to catch it while it's happening. So I really, really try and stay in the day I'm in, and that's my goal in life is to one day be in the day I'm in for the whole day. I just find that you know when when I when I'm aware of that stuff and when I throw a light on it, it doesn't have the same negative impact in my life. Um, and when I do believe in in something greater than me, I have a chance. And I've had it for me, from, from my own personal experience, I've had evidence of that, definitely. I can't say I haven't because I'd be lying. That's an optimistic note to wrap it up on. Yeah, there you go. I think. I'll go back to where I jumped off with. Without realising it, you, you were a great help. Maybe some of the suffering I went through helped you in some way. I obviously did because I obviously just, maybe I said a few things I'd learned to deal with my own shit. You yeah. know what I mean? Um, because we're all in this together and everyone's going to go through shit at various times in your life. No one gets a free ride. Um, but there is power in numbers and I believe, I know now that there's power in connection and we all need each other. Yeah. You know, you can't do it alone. We all need each other. That's that's the that's the one thing I've learned the most that you cannot underestimate the power of friendships, of groups, of, you know, connectedness with other people, like-minded um, and just talking to people and, you know, being there for someone and then being there for you. Sometimes that's all it takes. A good walk and a chat with a good friend can turn a whole thing around for you in your head. You know, so I think and for me, they're the most important things now. Success has been amazing. Fame has been bizarre and it's been amazing too. But I find more now moving forward. For me, it's about the, them important relationships in my life and cultivating them. Glenn Power, thank you very much. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed it. So there you have it, episode six of Deep Diving with Glenn Power from the script. Massive love to Glenn for taking the time to come over and chat. He is a wonderful soul and I'm really privileged uh, to call him a friend. If you did enjoy the chat, please stick it on your socials. Please post the podcast and tell your friends about it. Uh, And we're growing listener by listener week on week. And it's really exciting to see the numbers go up. So thank you for being with me. Talk next week. Peace.